today we are excited to kick off our brand new series called Crafted. You know, we've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus and how he, how he changes us and he transforms our life. And I love how Ephesians 2.10 reads in the New Living Translation. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Have you ever, have you ever known any skilled craftsmen, you know, creators, artists, like those talented folks who can step into a workshop or a studio and just pull something together, make, make something incredible out of like raw materials and they take a piece of paper or leather, canvas, wood or clay and with some brush strokes or the ink of a pen or tapping of a chisel with a hammer, they're able to, to make something that's awe-inspiring and desirable. Like they take the, the ordinary and make it astounding. Well, what scripture is getting at here when it says, um, you are God's handiwork, you are his masterpiece, that you've been handcrafted. Disciples are, um, they are they're not mass produced, they're made one at a time. That's how God transforms our life. So how does he do it? Like, how do we change? How do we actually end up something different than we used to be? What's God's part? Like, what's our part? Well, together in this series, we're gonna learn what it means to put our lives in God's hands, where we get to participate in this process of, of transformation, of him making us and remaking us into who he's made us to be, and uh, where Christ is formed in us. And so that's what he's doing, and that's what we're gonna do together. And as we jump into the series, I can't think of anybody better to kick this series off than Lisa Harper. Um, if you know her, you know she's a gift to our church. She is full of wisdom and discernment and a real prophetic voice and a powerful storyteller, and she's hilarious. So she'll have you laughing until your face hurts and then drop some biblical truth into your heart that you need to hear. She lives in Middle Tennessee, right down the road, and over the years, she's made significant investments into our staff and into our church. She has a huge heart and passion for God's Word and a real gift to teach it. And so I wanna encourage you to just open up your heart and ask God to speak to you today. Um, you don't need a message from Lisa. You need a word from God. And so invite God to speak to your heart through her. And I know that's what she would want the most. So across all of our campuses, I wanna ask you, let's welcome Lisa Harper together. Thank you. I really, really love this church. And I'm not sure why Pastor Kevin allows me to come back he just knows if he keeps giving me at-bats, maybe eventually I'll connect with the ball. I just love, love, love this church. How many of y'all are at Cross Point? I can't see all the campuses, but right here in downtown, how many of y'all are here for the very first time this Sunday? Okay, I need to ask a promise from y'all. I know I don't know you well yet, but I'm a spitter, so we're gonna be intimately connected in a few minutes. Will y'all promise to come back? I'll give you all the chocolate in my purse because it gets better. When he's preaching, it gets much better. So just are y'all visiting from like, you know, California? That's a very short trip. Southwest, that's a very short trip. So y'all come back again because it gets better with Pastor Kevin. Reach out and touch the saint that you are plopped next to. This is your first time at Cross Point. You don't have to interlock fingers. You can just awkwardly pinky grip or you can just sit there and pretend like you don't speak English and you're gonna completely ignore me by touching. Would you pray 
for those saints on either side of you. Pray that even in these next few moments, that Holy Spirit would tender our hearts. We were just praying for y'all and praying that any of us who came in this morning kind of with our arms crossed over our chest, that we would uncross our arms so that our hearts would be pliant for whatever hope and truth and peace and grace and comfort God wants to implant in us this morning. Jesus, 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 thank you that you are an accessible God, not a a faraway ethereal spirit or an existential construct, but you're up close and you're personal. So, Lord, we can't understand that. We can't step into that on our own. We need your Holy Spirit to give us the grace to lean further into your embrace. And so that's what we're asking Jesus this morning. We ask that by the power and authority of your name and by the authority of the blood you already chose to shed on our behalf because you love us so much. You'd rather die than be separated from us. So thank you, thank you, Jesus, for this place and this grace. Um, as Pastor just said, help us to hear from you. We need, um, we need fresh mercy this morning, Jesus. Amen and amen. Um, I was with a friend of mine recently. We're talking about sanctification. And when Kevin called and asked if I would be willing to kick off the series on sanctification, I thought he had called the wrong Lisa because I am hot mess express. And so to talk about sanctification, I thought, ooh, yikers, you're choosing the wrong girl Um, because sanctification involves holiness, moving toward Jesus and ever-increasing intimacy. And sometimes I kind of stumble more than I walk clean, uh, but I was reminded of what happened with a friend of mine recently. We were talking about the gospel. We've been in seminary together for a long time. She's a lot smarter than me. She remembers the Greek and the Hebrew. But she said, Lisa, when I think of the gospel, when I think of the goodness of God, I think of the Cinderella story. And I thought, you know, I don't. But she's so sweet, I didn't want to rebut her at that point, so I just kept sipping my pumpkin spice. And she said, I think the gospel is kind of like when Cinderella and the prince get together and they live happily ever after. And I thought, there's just something about this that sticks in my craw. It just doesn't resonate with me, but I didn't want to be rude, so I didn't say anything We left, I was driving home, and I thought, why did that bug me? Why did it bug me that she compared the gospel, the goodness of God, to the Cinderella story? And I figured it out right as I was driving up my driveway. I thought, oh, I get it. If you've watched the movie, read the story, maybe re-watched the video with your kids or grandkids or some kind of kids you were forced to take care of, you remember that Cinderella deserves the prince. She's beautiful, high metabolism, Great with animals, even rodents. Remember the mice? Uh, She was nice to her Jerry Springer version of a step family. I mean, when the glass shoe fits, you're like, score. The right girl got the right guy. That is not the gospel. That's really not the gospel. The gospel is you've got an ugly stepsister. She's wearing a tight-knit dress with horizontal neon stripes She's never done one flipping day of keto in her whole life. She's got bad hair. She's got a hairy mole right here with a hair that sticks out about a foot and a half. She's standing at the edge of the dance floor. 
And then in walks the handsome prince. And he walks past all the gorgeous Belmede girls with high metabolisms. <laughs> and he walks straight up to the stepsister and he says, may I have this dance? And the rest of us go, oh, why did a guy like that choose a girl like her? But when she steps into his embrace, she becomes beautiful. She didn't bring beauty with her. It was in the embrace that she became beautiful. That is basically what sanctification is. We've got a, a formal definition. It's the lifelong process by which those who follow Jesus are made more like him. Sanctification talks about how we are empowered by Holy Spirit to look like Jesus, to live like Jesus, unlike justification, and that's another theological term, justification happens instantaneously. The second you put your hope in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed in us. That means shazam. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We didn't bring it with us, but the moment we say, I'm a mess and I need a Messiah, the moment we, we ask for forgiveness of our sins, the moment we put our hope in Jesus as our, as our Lord, as our Savior, in that moment, instantaneously, we're justified. Sanctification doesn't happen in a moment. It's more of a crockpot thing. Sanctification is this ongoing process of being molded just like that piece of clay, being molded into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Justification is kind of like um, a marriage. You say, I do, in your couture gown and in his tux or in your Daisy Dukes and his crop pants, crop jeans in Nashville, if you made the decision quickly. Then you go to Paris or Gatlinburg, and it, it just happens in a moment. Sanctification is that process between saying I do and celebrating your 50th wedding anniversary. It's, it's a process. Sanctification in biblical narrative is connected to holiness. As a matter, matter of fact, there are five words that stem from the same Hebrew and Greek, and the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, New Testament originally written in Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, but there are five words, sanctified, consecrated, holy, sacred, saint, and holiness. That's actually six. My math is off. Those five words are used to translate a family of words that basically mean sacred, other. So to be sanctified means we're countercultural. It means we're other. When, when those words are applied to God and Holy Writ, it's talking about the transcendent nature of God. He is transcendent. That means he is absolutely perfect. He is absolutely other. There is no one like our God. That's what those words that we get sanctified or sanctification or holy, that, that's what they come from. So what in the world is Peter talking about? In 1 Peter chapter 1, when he says, I want you to be holy even as God is holy. God is perfectly transcendent. Listen to who that's coming from. Pete, he's the same one who threw Jesus under the bus. 
At his deepest moment of need, Pete is the one who vehemently and vulgarly denied that he even knew Jesus through in a few expletives to convince the crowd. So how in the world can a hot mess like Pete say that we're called to be holy? Because we are not imminent. We are not perfect. What is Pete talking about? He's talking about moving toward Jesus. It's not a moment, it's a movement. It's not based on the embodiment of biblical ethics. Sanctification is not about checking off some some religious to-do list. It's not transactional, it's relational. It's about leaning into the unconditional love of Jesus. Sanctification can't be generated by our good behavior. Sanctification is generated by us moving toward Jesus, stepping into his embrace, if you will. If you brought your Bible, turn to John's gospel. If you'll turn to the middle and then just head to the right about two inches, you'll find John chapter 13. We've got four gospels. At the beginning of our New Testaments, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. It means the good news. John is the fourth gospel. His gospel is different than the other three. The first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. That's just a fancy word that means they're similar. They're written in a similar literary style. John is different. His gospel is set apart. It's not that it's holier than the others, but it's unique. Five times in the gospel of John, John, the author, refers to himself as, I'm the one he loved. Five times. That's why John is called the beloved. I used to imagine the other 11 disciples going, I'm the one he loved, I'm the one he loved, just getting so bugged by John. But when you get to the end of his gospel, you'll see why he could say, I'm the one he loved. Midway through the gospel, John chapter 13 is the clue that will give us uh, the insight as to why he could say, I'm the one he loved. Sanctification isn't about our behavior, y'all. It's about our belovedness. John gets it. After saying these things, John chapter 13, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This is just prior to him being unfairly arrested and then murdered on a cross. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This is the Passover, that that last meal he shares together with his disciples. We always imagine them at at a dinner table, but tables in the first century were low-slung affairs. It was like a a picnic table and a coffee table got hooked up on eHarmony and had a baby. They're real low low tables, and they didn't eat at chairs the way we eat at chairs. They ate on cushions. And so I love the idea of being able to sit on a cushion in elastic waist pants with no zippers and reclining while I inhale carbs. That's basically what they did. Don't you love that Jesus calls himself the bread of life and not the kale of life? After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit because he's looking forward to the cross. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Verse 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, 
That's John talking about himself. Whom Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus. So you've got the disciples, they're on cushions, they're around this table. They're sitting on their left hip, leaning, eating with their right hand. Why do we know where they're sitting on their left hip? Because the right hand in, in Semitic culture is the only hand that's considered clean. That's why you'll never read in the Bible that Jesus sat at the left hand of God the Father. It's always the right hand. So to eat on a cushion with your right hand, you have to lean on your left hip. So they're sitting on cushions, eating with their right hand. They're eating fish, they're eating bread, preferably fried fish. And John says, who is going to betray you? John the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said, who is it? So John scholars will tell you is 13 or 14 years old at the last supper. He was the youngest of the disciples. That's why he asked the question. Because in Jewish tradition at the Passover Seder, the youngest kid at the meal is the one who asked the questions. So John's a, he's a kid, but he writes this gospel, scholars will tell you, when he's in his 60s. Legend has it that John the disciple, John the beloved, he's the only disciple that didn't die by martyrdom. Pete was crucified upside down for his faith. Most of them went on to martyr's death. Judas, of course, died by suicide. John is the only one, scholars will tell you, died a natural death. He wrote this gospel account in his 60s, in his latter years. And when he wrote this gospel toward the end, according to the first century, you're supposed to say, here's what gives me credibility to write this gospel. Anyone who wrote an eyewitness account was supposed to tell you what legitimized them as an author of Holy Writ what rabbi they studied under, what degree they had. But at the end of this gospel, this is what John says. He talks about Peter. This is when Peter was, was restored after he threw Jesus on the bus. I love that conversation. Most of us know it as, Pete, do you love me? Jesus is saying that to Peter. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Second time, Jesus says, Pete, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Pete says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And John says that at that point, he was kind of sad that Jesus asked him the same question three times. And then he says, feed my sheep. Why have you heard that Peter and Jesus have that conversation and Jesus asked him the same question three times? Y'all can talk back, I'm not your pastor. Why have y'all heard that? Exactly, that's what all of us have heard. And it, it's part of the truth. One of my favorite living scholars, I love all the dead guys, but one of my favorite living Bible scholars, Dr. Craig Keener, he's at Asbury Seminary, one of the most brilliant scholars on the New Testament. He says, if you get out of the Bible what you're expecting to get out of the Bible, you need to raise your expectations. It just gets better. I turned 60 last month. I've been walking with Jesus since I was five years old. I love the discounts I get at fast food restaurants. 
as a 60-year-old woman, but let me tell you what's even better than that. I can look back over 55 years and I can say it just gets better. It doesn't get stiffer. It doesn't get more, more sober. It gets better. It gets better. It gets better. It gets better. This, this is not a textbook, y'all. It's a love story. When Jesus says, Pete, do you love me? The first time the word he uses there for love in the Greek is agapeo. Do you love me more than anything? Do you love me with a sacrificial love? And Peter responds by saying, Lord, you know me. You know I phileo you. I don't love you with a sacrificial love. I love you with kind of a Facebook kind of love. You're a friend. I don't love you sacrificially. You know what I just did, Jesus. A week and a half ago, I threw you under the bus. I denied that I even knew you. Second time, Simon, son of John, Peter's formal name. Do you agapeo me? Do you love me more than anything? Second time, Peter responds, Lord, you, you know me. You know I don't love you perfectly. I love, I love, I love, I love that Peter's the one who says years later, be holy even as God is holy. Because if you look at his backstory, you'd think how in the world could a hot mess, mess like that encourage us in the art of sanctification? Because there's so many massive mistakes in his backstory. Lord, you know me. All I've got is phileo the third time. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? He changes the verb. He goes from do you love me perfectly to do you love me like a friend? He lowers the love bar for Peter. I love that conversation because once again, it proves it is not about behavioral modification. It's about our belovedness. It's about us beginning to believe that on our worst day, the king of all kings says that one was worth dying for. She's beautiful. That is my son. John illustrates that because at the point in his gospel, after telling that story, when he should have said, here's what legitimizes me and as an author of Holy Writ, this is what he says instead. He says, I'm the one who had been reclining at table close to him. He wrote this 40 years after the Passover, y'all. Four decades have passed since he leaned against the chest of Jesus, and that's not Hebrew hyperbole, John had literally reclined against the chest of Jesus. He felt Jesus' chest expand when he took a breath. He felt it fall back when he exhaled. John had leaned against Jesus. So in the latter stage of, stages of his life, when he's supposed to give us all of his credibility, who he studied under, what he'd done, how he'd performed. He says, let me tell you who I am. I'm the one who was held by Jesus. I was held by Jesus. Sometimes I hear people today saying, well, Lisa, you talk too emotionally. How can we be held by Jesus? Isn't that an anthropomorphic term? Fancy word that sometimes seminary people will use just to prove that it was worth paying $3,000 an hour for grad school. <laughs> Anthropomorphic simply means using human terms to describe something that is not human, usually to describe God. How can we say we're held by God? Well, we didn't initiate that. God over and over again says, I will 
hold you. I will carry you. He describes himself in anthropomorphic terms when he says, I'm a mother hen gathering my chicks under me. Jesus, if you study the gospels again and again and again and again, used his hands to heal. He could have just spoken healing into existence, but rarely did he speak it into existence. He, he touched people. In Mark chapter one, there was a guy who was infected with a horrible case of leprosy. And it says that Jesus held him and then he healed his leprosy. He knew that that man's biggest disease wasn't wasn't the leprosy. It was that his heart was broken. He'd been ostracized, marginalized, and so Jesus held him, and then he healed him. Sanctification is not generated nor sustained by us. It is a process of becoming increasingly secure in the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not very professional. I'm more of a teacher than a speaker, and my preference is to be in spitting distance of, um, of family, of people I get to be close to. And so I asked him if I could get a little closer to tell you this last story that is how I've actually begun to understand what it is to lean further into the arms of my creator, Redeemer, because I grew up focusing on being dutiful. I came to Christ as a kid, but I didn't think he liked me very much because as a kid, there was already a lot of, uh, a lot of abuse, a lot of molestation in my story. From my earliest memory, I felt dirty. And so after I gave my heart to Jesus, I just resolved to be good. I thought I'll just keep my head down and I'll just try to behave. I'll try to do everything I possibly can so that God won't regret the fact that he lowered the bar just like he did with Peter to let me into his kingdom. I'll memorize all the verses. I'll be in vocational ministry. I'll wear turtlenecks. I mean, I will do everything I can to to earn God's favor, to work at holiness. And it took me a long, 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 long time to understand I can't generate sanctification. It's not about the embodiment of biblical ethics. It's about beginning to believe in our own belovedness. And I've learned that lesson through my daughter more than I have through any of my seminary professors. I became a mom through the miracle of adoption the year I turned 50. I was just an idiot in my 20s and 30s. I was really drawn to abusive men. And so God protected me from the guys that I was really attracted to. And the few good godly guys I dated, y'all married them. Um, (laughs) Because God protected them from me. And so I didn't think I'd ever have the grace of becoming anybody's mom. Because I was just such a train wreck uh, relationally. And I don't have the time, I won't take the time to tell you the whole story, but the bottom line is God redeemed, not because of my behavior, because of his kindness, redeemed to me years I served up to Locust on a silver platter. And at the age of 50, I had the undeserved joy of bringing my little girl home from Haiti um, through the miracle of adoption. I became a mom the exact same season I went through menopause, so that was like a double blessing. Um, 
Missy's first mama passed away when she was a baby in Haiti, and I got written into her story. And uh, her early years were tough in Haiti. Uh, she was really, really sick, almost died. And then she had to spend a season in an orphanage because legally that had to happen before I could bring her home to Tennessee. And while she was at the orphanage, she was abused and marginalized. And so when I finally brought her home to Nashville in April of 2014, our adoption transition specialist, I spent lots of good shoe money there, um, said, Lisa, you, you've got to start slow. Even though she knows you, I'd gone back and forth to Haiti a lot during the adoption process. She knows you. She called me Mama Blanc, white mama. She doesn't completely trust you. You're kind of like Santa with bigger hips. And so she said, start by massaging her feet with lotion. And you're just going to have to be super, super, super consistent in telling her, I see you, I love you, I see you, I love you, I'm not leaving, I see you, I love you. All she's known is abuse and abandonment, so it's just going to take a long time for her to trust that you're for her, not against her, that you're not going to leave. And so every night from April 14th, 2014, when I brought her home, I would take shea butter and I'd start with her little feet. She had just these tiny, little, perfect brown feet, rough as a cob because she didn't wear shoes in Haiti, and I would just rub lotion those feet, and Missy had her arms crossed and would just stare at me like, what are you doing, white mama? I'd rub her feet. I'd tell her how much I loved her. I'd rub her little calves. I'd tell her how much I loved her. And then as I put her to bed every single night, I would say five things. I would say, Missy, outre brave. You're very brave. Outre belle. You're very beautiful. Outre intelligent, you're very, very smart. Moi, Renman, I love you very, 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 very much. And Jesse, Jesus, loves you more. When I first started saying that, Missy couldn't even look at me. We'd lie next to each other in her little twin bed, and she would look away from me. And every night, I'd repeat it over and over and over again after I'd rubbed her perfect little feet. I'd say that over and over and over again, outre brave, outre belle, outre intelligent. I love you very, 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 very much, and Jesus loves you more. After about two weeks, she would kind of almost look at me. She'd glance, and then she'd giggle. You know, she was still really, really uncomfortable, but she'd kind of glance and then giggle. After about three weeks, she could meet my eyes for just a second, and then she'd look away, meet my eyes for just a second. After a month... One night, I remember it like it was yesterday. I said, Melissa, outre brave. You're so brave, honey. The things you endured at the orphanage and your heart is soft, it's not hard. You're so brave. You're so beautiful. Everything about you is beautiful. From your perfect curly hair to your little brown feet. You are beautiful. And baby, you're so smart. God protected your brain. They said in Haiti that you'd never be able to understand anything. By the way, my child does seventh grade math right now. I'll put her up against any of y'all. She's intelligent. I said, baby, you're all those things. I love you so much. And Jesse, Jesus 
loves you more. And that night she went, Mama, Rinman, it's Creole for love, Missy, form of a question. First time she had spoken back. And I said, oh, baby, I love you so much. I love you so much. I love you so much. And she went, Mama, Rinman, Missy. And then she took her feet, perfect little brown feet, and she crawled them up my belly. And then I grew this little fold. I call it the valley of affection. (laughs) I thought since Chick-fil-A was a Christian company, the calories wouldn't count. And I'd been (laughs) eating a lot of her, her waffle fries and I grew this little valley. She crawled her feet up my belly and y'all, she stuck all 10 toes in that fold. Just stuck her toes in that fold. And she went, Mama loves Missy. And I was like, this is it. This is it. In the safety of that embrace and her little twin bed, my girl began to believe, began to rest in the belief that I wasn't leaving, that I loved her. That's where sanctification happens for y'all. For all of us, it doesn't happen in memorizing scripture. It doesn't happen in church attendance. All those things are great, but those are PSs. Those are Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for healing me. Thank you for forgiving me. Holiness is not about biblical ethics, y'all. It's about intimacy. It's about leaning into the love of Jesus. And the more time you spent being held by Jesus, the more you'll start looking like him. That's Christoformity, modern word for sanctification. Christoformity is to be shaped like Jesus. We begin to be shaped like Jesus when we're held like Jesus. I'm a guest in this house, and I have not earned the right to do this, but I've had a lot of caffeine this morning, so I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to ask you to just move toward the people in your row that you know. There may be a few of you who've come to Cross Point this morning by yourself, and that's totally cool. I've got something for you to do as well. But if you know the people you're sitting with, some of you parents have children, young children, adult children. Some of y'all are with really dear friends. Some of y'all are with neighbors. Would you just kind of turn toward them now? Just turn away from me and turn toward them. As we begin to lean into this series on sanctification, let's start at relationship, a real relationship with Jesus Christ. So would you pray for each other? If you're comfortable praying out loud, please do that. This is your first time at Cross Point at one of the other campuses and I'm about to give you hives. Don't worry about praying out loud. You can just think angry birds for the next 30 seconds and endure. But if you feel comfortable praying, would you pray for those saints around you? Pray that they would have the grace to lean just a little closer into the unconditional love of Jesus. Sanctification is not transactional. It's not performative. It's relational. We will begin the ongoing process of sanctification from the safe circles of the arms 
of the God who loves us more than we can possibly ask or imagine. Some of y'all have really been wounded in the church. So the idea of leaning against anybody is a risk. Would you just confess, especially if you're by yourself, Lord, I need your grace to trust you enough to move toward you. Some of you, all you know is performance. Other people have ascribed worth to you based on your work. All you know is to run hard and do better. Would you in the sanctity of this moment just ask God to undo that wrong thinking about him? He doesn't see you as a worker bee. His favor, his love for you is not based on your productivity. It's based on your relationship with him. You are his daughter. You are his son. You are infinitely more precious to him than Missy is to me. And I'm telling you, I love that kid so much. You mess with her and I will cut you. And God's love for us just is infinitely beyond a human parent's love for their children. Pray for each other. Pray that those precious saints around you will begin to believe. Maybe just take the next tiny step toward a real relationship with Jesus. That's where sanctification begins. It doesn't begin in remedial behavior. It begins in the recognition of our belovedness. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive me, the chief of all sinners, that sometimes I get so busy doing stuff for you that you haven't even asked me to do that I, I don't rest in your arms. Sometimes I'm scared to rest in your arms because I'm afraid you'll see the things I've been spinning plates trying to hide. Oh, Lord Jesus, teach us what it is to rest in our belovedness. Teach us what it is to lean into your embrace. Lord, help us understand that holiness doesn't start with good behavior. Holiness begins with the belief that a God like you really does love people like us. Teach us, Jesus. Train us. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted and comfort us where we need to be comforted. We want to be more like you. We want to be set apart for your love and your kingdom purposes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen and amen. Um, thank y'all so much for having me. It's been more than an honor uh, to have this family meeting with you. I hope the rest of your week involves leaning a little more fully into the arms of Jesus. And between now and then, I hope you have some amazing Tex-Mex for lunch. So have a great rest of your Sunday. You're dismissed. Hug somebody you like on the way out of church.